Let's pray. Father, just pray that in our time, in your word, that you would bless it, that your word would go out of my mouth, that it would be your words, that your spirit would work not only through me, but in all of us to sanctify us more, to sanctify our mind, our thoughts, our knowledge, our understanding, and therefore transform the way we live so that we would be an honor to you. And in any way in which we fail to uphold the honor you deserve, we rest solely in your grace and magnify you and worship you and glorify you for your grace. And in doing so, whether we are good or we are bad, we are yours in Christ. So, <clears throat> even though that's true, we do desire to live our lives and to think in ways that bring you great glory, that magnify the gospel and exalt Jesus. Help us to do that this morning in your word. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> so today's text finishes Paul's very brief statement on the future appearing of Jesus that he mentioned at the end of verse 14. Um, <clears throat> he doesn't provide us with much in this text concerning the return of Jesus. But in other places, Paul and Jesus both give us more insight into his return and more specifically what we are to do with that information. Now, so we're talking about the return of Jesus and Paul kind of hinted, didn't hint at it, mentioned it at the end of verse 14. And now in verse 15, he just gives us a little bit more, but not much more at all. So it's a very uh, short and uh, lacks a very short expression of the return of Jesus and lacks a lot of information. There's not a whole lot to glean here about what the return of Christ will be like in, in some of those details. <clears throat> but the Bible in other places gives us a lot of information. Um, the ultimate application, though, is what I want to go after. So I want to understand what the appearing of Christ and return of Jesus means, or <clears throat> maybe even what it looks like, um, and then we'll talk about when it's going to happen. And then, ultimately, with that information, what we need to figure out is what do we do with it while we wait for it to happen. And I think the ultimate application here is hope. Uh, Romans eight twenty four, Paul says, Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? Does that make sense to you? Who hopes for what he sees? You hope in the thing that you have not yet experienced, right? You hope uh, for a future event to take place. And if that event is no longer in the future and you've now experienced it, hope no longer exists. Um, a child whose father is off to war hopes to see his father again. And until that father returns, he's in constant state of hope. But when dad gets home, hope no longer exists because he's now seen his father. So hope requires an anticipation of something in the future. And, and not only does hope require anticipation of something to come, but hope also requires a lack in something, like the child waiting for his father. What is he hoping in? His father. What does he lack? Well, he hopes his father. So hope requires a lack in something. Maybe it's a lack in knowledge or usually a lack in an experience. 
We have the knowledge that Jesus will return. We just don't know when. But since it is promised and we have yet to experience it, we hope in his return. And I think that's the ultimate application here that we'll see from Scripture. And there's a lot more to it than that. But the question of application then is what do we do with that hope? How do we wield that hope as believers? And I think some other texts are going to help us discover that. So verse 15, uh, just 15a. I'm going to read the end of verse 14 first and then read 15. Paul writes at the end of 14, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, verse 15, which he will display at the proper time. So it is his return, it is the appearing of Jesus, his return, that he will display at the proper time. Meaning, Paul doesn't know when that will be, only God himself knows. That's what he's telling us. Even with the several post-resurrection personal revelations of Jesus in person to Paul, we know this, Paul says that he did not get, the, in Galatians chapter 1, he says he did not get the gospel from any man or any person or any angel or anybody. He got it directly from a revelation from Jesus Christ. And then we see in Acts, Paul goes into the temple just, just after, uh, having a few years after being converted and in the temple, he gets into what he calls a trance. And in that trance, this is from Acts 22, 24, I don't know, it's in Acts. So uh, he gets in this trance and he has, sees Jesus and Jesus talks to him and teaches him and explains it. So, and we don't know all the details other than we have Paul's letters and in Paul's letters he communicates things that Jesus had told him. He just doesn't explicitly say, well, Jesus told me this, but not this. You know, so <clears throat> what we do know is Paul has amazing, awesome theological mind and great doctrine. And I would say, in terms of his writing, perfect doctrine because he's communicating to us exactly what Jesus told him. And yet with all of that, he, Jesus never tells Paul when he's coming back. And Jesus was clear about this during his earthly ministry as well. In Mark 13, 32, while teaching about his future return, he says, but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So while Jesus is on earth doing his earthly ministry before his death and resurrection, he states that only the Father knows the time of his return and that even Jesus himself admits who is God himself admits that he does not know when he's coming back. <clears throat> Which brings up a bigger question about the nature of Christ during his earthly ministry. If he is God and God knows all things, how does Jesus not know? Jesus is God, God knows all things, but Jesus doesn't know when he's coming back. So how is Jesus God? Wouldn't that mean that Jesus is not God? When Jesus became a human... He did something that we find throughout Scripture in different places, expressed in different ways, that is something only God could do. When Jesus became a human during, or in his incarnation, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, who's fully and totally God, intentionally and voluntarily restricted his own deity. 
Now, that does not mean that his divine nature or his deity is restricted or that it is incapable of something, but that he willfully and voluntarily restricted his own access to certain aspects of his own deity or divine portions of his nature. In doing so, this does not make him any less God. In doing so, this doesn't make him like he's man sometimes and he's God at other times. He's always a man and always God, totally, fully, and completely at all times, yet he intentionally restricts his deity in his humanity for certain reasons. And like I said, this doesn't make him any less God, but it actually validates the opposite. It actually validates that he is God because only God himself could have the power to control the application of the nature of God, which is exactly what Jesus does. He controls the application or the access or the restriction of his own divine power and ability and accessibility by restricting himself. And this is an important truth for several different reasons, many of which don't, we, we don't really have time to discover, but I'll give you a little bit so that we can build like a foundation and a basis for this argument, which will help us understand today's text. So because, because of this reality, the nature of Jesus in a lot of situations, we can kind of view differently with this new information. Besides its importance to his return, this voluntary divine restriction enables Jesus to act within his human flesh when tempted by sin. And that is an important distinction because James 1.13 says, God cannot be tempted. Therefore, if Jesus is God, then he cannot be tempted. And if Jesus cannot be tempted because he's God, then that means Jesus was never tempted. But Hebrews chapter uh, chapter 4, verse 15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every aspect, I'm sorry, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. If God can't be tempted and Jesus is God, then how could Jesus have been tempted? Because this is the importance of his voluntary restriction of his divine nature. The temptation requires the possibility of choosing evil and sin. Right? It's not a temptation unless there's a pull to that thing. Temptation requires the ability to desire that sin. It doesn't require that you actually desire the sin. It requires the possibility of desiring that sin. That's what temptation requires. The possibility of choosing evil and choosing sin and thus to resist that temptation is to choose righteousness over sin. Yet, God cannot sin. It's impossible for God to sin. So it is impossible for him to be tempted. Because if sin is not a possibility, then the possibility of a desire for sin is also not possible, and therefore temptation isn't possible. Because unlike us, sin 
has absolutely zero pull to God or for God. He feels no sense of desire for sin in, in any way that could cause him to have to resist. And that's all because of his perfect holiness. So the concept of temptation as we know it isn't even a possibility for God himself. But Jesus, being both fully God and fully man, came to die for our sins. And in order for him to do that, to be worthy of that sacrifice for our sins, he must be a man who resisted all temptations and did not sin. Now the requirement for our sin sacrifice must be a perfect man. And the only one who could be a perfect man is the perfect God. Hence, the gift, Jesus. Making him the one and only unique being who is worthy. But in order for him to be worthy, he first must be sinless. And sinlessness alone doesn't qualify to make him worthy as a sacrifice. That sinlessness must have been tested and tried because he's a man. And in the testing and trial of that sinlessness, which is tested by temptation, he must prevail over all temptations and sins and not sin, which is exactly what he did. So Jesus had to be sinless, and in his sinlessness had to be tested through temptation. And no man with a sin nature could endure that. So this man who does it for us must also be God. But God cannot be tempted. So this, this God must also be a man so that he can be tempted. So his human nature can be tempted and he must prevail over temptation and sin. In order for this God-man to remain God at all times, but to also at the same time be tempted, he must have the ability to restrict his divine nature and operate only within his human nature without being any less divine at any time. So you can see how valuable this truth is, uh, this truth of his voluntarily self-imposed divine restriction. You can see how important that is to the gospel alone. But it is also important in other areas of biblical truth, <clears throat> such as what Jesus knows and when he knows it. We know that Jesus didn't know everything at all times. You can see this throughout the gospels. Luke 2.52, it says of our young 12-year-old Savior Jesus, who's just left the temple, blowing the minds of everyone in the temple with his incredible knowledge and wisdom at only 12 years old. At the end of that text, in verse 52, it says, And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. God cannot increase in anything. God can't learn. Because to learn would require a lack of knowledge. God knows all things. All things are what things are because God determined they are that thing. He doesn't just know all things because he's learned all things. All things that can be learned come from him. There is nothing that can be learned that is outside of his parameter. There's nothing knowable beyond God. Everything that you can learn and everything that you could know and everything that's beyond what you could know that is knowable but will never reach, like 
Where does the universe end? Well, we'll probably never actually discover that in this lifetime. But God knows. Is it infinite? Does it end? Is it a little marble? I mean, we don't know. We got a bunch of guesses. And you can apply that to any truth. All truths are what they are because God has determined that that's what they are. So he doesn't discover those truths. He determines that those are true. So everything is known by God because God is the one who created the knowability. And so he can't increase in wisdom because that would require him to have a lack of wisdom at some point. So how is it that Jesus, who is God, increases in wisdom? Well, it has to be his humanity that's increasing in wisdom. The man, Jesus, is learning and growing. Paul teaches us this also in Philippians 2.6, which says, Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Meaning he did not hold on to his divinity well in his humanity. That's what that text means. That Jesus is from God, Jesus is God, and yet Jesus relinquishes his divinity. Doesn't mean he's, letting, he's no longer divine while on earth, but he is restricting his own access to his own divinity while operating as a human in a variety of ways. And there are several times in the Gospels where Jesus like, knows the thoughts uh, and the intentions of other people. He does this to the Pharisees. He recognizes their thoughts and he accuses them. Not accuses them, but he responds to their thoughts without them ever saying a word. He knows the thoughts and intentions of his apostles and his disciples at times and then responds to their sinful desires. And then there are times where he doesn't know things and he's responding to situations. But even that, where Jesus can look into the mind or thoughts or he perceives or knows the intention and thoughts of someone else, that is not Jesus tapping into his divine nature to pierce into their minds. But rather, it's the Holy Spirit revealing it to Jesus as the Holy Spirit not only knows all things, but he and Jesus are one, perfectly united. So Jesus isn't like just going, oh, I really wish I knew what this guy was thinking. You know, and he's like, Boop, divine mode. And then he's like, hey, I know your thoughts. Okay, boop, divine mode off. Hey, guess what? I know this. That's like cheating, right? Jesus has to do what we have to do. He has to be an example. Everything that Jesus does, I shouldn't say everything. The way Jesus lives his life is meant to be an example for us. And if it's an example for us, it has to be repeatable by us. Which means that if Jesus is going to live a sinless life, and that life is the life that he then gives to us, and we're supposed to live that life now too, then we need to have the ability and possibility of living a sinless life. Now our flesh gets in the way and causes us to sin constantly. And that will always be there. Galatians 5, there's this tug of war between the Holy Spirit and, this, and, and our flesh that goes on until the day we are glorified. But what Jesus has done is he lived his life in perfection by the power of the Holy Spirit and then gives us that life. And not just that life, but he gives us that life by the power of the Holy Spirit. So we get this gift called the Holy Spirit and with the Holy Spirit comes life. And we get the life that Jesus lived. We get the morality of Christ. We get the mind of Christ. We get the heart of Christ. We get the knowledge of Christ. We get the righteousness of Christ. 
We get the, the, the holiness of Christ. And one day we are guaranteed and promised the glory of Christ. But we can't live those things out in our life unless we have something that helps us do it because our flesh is in the way. And that thing, that person we get, that God we get, is the Holy Spirit whom Jesus gives to us. And so the life that Jesus lived that we're supposed to follow needs to be repeatable by us. But we're not God. So we, if he's living his life through his divinity, by the power of his divinity, and tapping into the divine cheat code to read people's minds, well, we can't do that. So what does Jesus have to do? He has to depend on God the Father by the power of the Holy Spirit, trust in the Spirit to work. Jesus is perfect. So his communion and union with the Father and in the Spirit is a perfect union that is truly Something that no other human has ever experienced in this life. We will one day, but not in this life. And so, Jesus is so in step and in tune every second of his existence. He is hearing the voice of his father until he's on the cross. He says, Father, why have you forsaken me? Where'd your voice go? Because his entire life, 33 years... He lived just hearing the Father speak through the Spirit, communicating with him in heart and in mind. He was so perfectly obedient. There was never for a moment a sliver of sin that interrupted that perfect presence and union between the Father and the Son. And because of that, Jesus was able to know exactly what the will of the Father was at all times in every situation. And that's why he could say and repeat it over and over again throughout his earthly ministry, I came to do one thing, the will of him who sent me. This is my job, to do the will of the Father. And that's why there can be a time where Jesus is standing there communicating with a Pharisee or a disciple and he can suddenly know their intentions or their thoughts. Because God the Father, through the power of the Spirit, the Spirit who knows the depths of the mind of God, communicates to Jesus, the man, what is going on in this other person's mind. Why? To serve the purposes of God for Christ. And Jesus needs to be able to live a life on this earth as a human in his earthly ministry. The, the, the life he lived that purchased our life needs to be a life we can repeat. Which means we can't be, he can't operate in that divinity because we can't operate in that divinity. So what does God do? Blesses him with the Holy Spirit. And what do we have? The Holy Spirit. Meaning, we have the same access, power, ability, possibility, and responsibility to live our lives in the power of the Spirit. United with him, filled with the Spirit, which is not something we always feel. We are all indwelled with the Spirit. Every believer receives the Holy Spirit. And that Holy, the Holy Spirit will never leave the believer ever. So he is secured in you. You are never without the Holy Spirit. But Paul does talk about the filling of the Holy Spirit. There's a difference between the filling and the indwelling. And he tells us to be constantly, in Ephesians 5, to constantly be being filled. And what does Jesus do to be filled with the Spirit? He does ministry, does ministry, does ministry, does ministry. And you can tell he's tired. Just, 
healing people and preaching and teaching and arguing and, you know, walking everywhere. And what does he do to be filled with the Spirit? He retreats. He goes off to the Father to be alone. And he gets filled back up. It is the presence of the Father. It is that. That is what fills his affections for his Father. He, he pours out the Spirit in his ministry. He pours out the Spirit. The Spirit works. And he empties the power of the Spirit out of him as he preaches and teaches and heals and does all kinds of miracles and ministry. And then he goes and gets recharged by communing with the Father one-on-one, alone, praying. That, that is where we, I mean, this is why, this is why Malachi says, not Malachi, Nehemiah, sorry, says, um, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Because where do you find the joy of the Lord? In the presence of the Lord. And in the presence of the Lord, joy is filled. And when joy is filled, strength is renewed. So where do we get our strength to continue? In the presence of God. If you are living your life day by day and week by week and you are not spending alone time with God in prayer, in seclusion, there's a lot of different ways that we pray. You could be driving in the car with your eyes open, praying, fantastic. You could pray at the dinner table, fantastic. We pray here in church together, fantastic. Pray in Bible study, fantastic. Pray at the prayer meeting, fantastic. There's a million different ways to pray, and they're all great as long as you're praying. But there's one type of prayer we should never miss. You, God, and no one else. Alone. Eyes closed. Jesus says, go in a closet. So, now, now Jesus is saying that because he's telling them, don't be like the Pharisees who walk around with, you know, like, oh, I'm praying with such majestic words and don't I look so righteous. Like, that's what the Pharisees were doing. And Jesus is combating that by saying, you know what, if you're going to pray, it's between you and God, not for everyone else to see how great of a prayer you are. So that's really what he's dealing with there. But there is this significant importance to you being alone with God. That's where your joy is fulfilled. And it isn't just prayer, but it's time in the Word. You need to meet with God. And if you're thinking, well, why do I need to meet with God? Because I have the Holy Spirit in me, so aren't I meeting with God at all times? No, you need to take the intentional step and effort to recognize the presence of God that never leaves you. The only time we lack God's presence is never. But it feels like we do because, it's because of us. It's our flesh or our sin nature that causes us to either sin, which puts what feels like a wedge between us and God, and the gospel goes, whoa, 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 there's no wedge. And the gospel pulls the wedge away and says, don't you dare pretend there's a wedge here because of your sin. That wedge is removed. Sin does not wedge between you and God. You are, re- you are redeemed in Christ. So that sin is not meant to make you think there's a wedge between you and God. That sin is meant to make you draw near to God where he restores you and fills you with joy, and satisfies you. And and when you meet with God, and you're in the presence of God regularly, He becomes genuinely and truly satisfying. He becomes a pleasure. It becomes a joy. And if you think to yourself, okay, let's just think about this practically, all right? If you're just thinking, yeah, no, I get what you're saying. It's supposed to be that way. But to be honest, when I try that, and I go in the closet, and I pray by myself, you know, I, I do what I'm supposed to do. It doesn't feel like joy, it doesn't feel like satisfying, I don't, 
don't feel those things. I'd be willing to bet that if that's your mentality, this is not yet a habit of yours. So if, I, if you don't do this, if you don't meet alone with God daily, and then you tried it today, it might feel good. You might go, oh, that felt good. Like, whew, yeah, that was good. I'm glad I did that. Yeah, I like, like talked to God, worked things out, was in his word a little bit. Yeah, yeah, good. Then the next day you try it, and it's like, yeah, I don't really feel it the way I felt it yesterday. And then the third day, yeah, I'm just not feeling. You know, it just doesn't, I'm not feeling all happy and joyful and excited every time I'm done. It doesn't feel like, whoa, I'm, I'm walking out of the closet shining like Moses' face after he got off Mount Sinai and saw the glory of God. That's not how I feel every time I pray. Trust me, keep doing it. It doesn't feel that way because it's not a habit. It feels weird because it's new. That's why it's not working the way you think it should work. But trust me, it's working. Not only will it work, but you're commanded to do it. So if you want to be filled with the Spirit, you need to get alone with God because in the presence of God there is full joy and satisfaction and He fills you with His Spirit and He renews your strength. He renews your ability. He strengthens your gifting. And then you leave. You walk out of the closet and you go out into the world and you are ready to give and serve and sacrifice which are identifying markers of the Christian life. So Jesus couldn't be tapping into his divinity. He had to be retreating, be alone with his Father, getting filled with the Holy Spirit so that he could do his ministry in a way that we could repeat. So all of this helps us understand why, well, Jesus was on earth he did not know when he would return. And knowing that helps us understand why Paul tells Timothy that Jesus will return at the proper time and that we do not get to know. After Jesus' death and resurrection, he tells the disciples in Acts 1, 6, he says that the disciples say, hey, Jesus, when are we going to take over the kingdom? When are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel? Acts 1-7, Jesus says, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. So now, this is no longer Jesus in his earthly ministry. This is Jesus after he died on the cross, was buried for three days, rose from the grave, and is now walking around for 40 days in the sight of hundreds of people. And now he's talking to his disciples before he ascends into heaven for good, before his final return. And the disciples still don't get it. They're like, hey, you rose from the grave. Let's go. Let's do this. Let's take over. It's time to restore Israel. They still don't get the plan. Why don't they get the plan? Because they still don't have something they need. And that's the Holy Spirit, which they get in chapter 2 of Acts. So they're still without the power of the Holy Spirit to understand the gospel that they're living in and experiencing. And the moment they get the Holy Spirit, boom, all cylinders click, and Peter goes out and preaches the gospel, and the disciples take off in ministry. But before that, they're sitting here going, all right, Jesus, you're here, let's go. And Jesus says, you don't know the times of the seasons, and it's not for you to know. 
But notice that unlike in the Gospels, here in Acts, when Jesus talks about his return, he is in his resurrected form, meaning he is now in his full divine form while also still in his full human form, which he will be in for eternity. He will forever be human and he will forever be God. Except now, post-resurrection, he has unrestricted himself to the full access of his divinity. Because look at verse 7 of Acts 1. He talks about his return, post-resurrection, now full, fully accessing his divinity. And he does not say, unlike in the Gospels, he does not say that he does not know. Like he tells his disciples earlier. Now, I hesitate to make an argument from silence, but if Jesus made it a point earlier to confirm that he did not know, why would he not confirm it again unless he does now know? Meaning though Jesus did not know the time or the hour during his earthly ministry, now he has, in, now that he's in the presence of the Father, in full resurrected form, his divine nature is fully accessible according to his own will, because he's God, and he now knows when he will return. Now, Quick caveat, there is an argument to be made that even after his resurrection and even now today in heaven, in the presence of the Father, sitting at the right hand of the Father on high, that Jesus still doesn't know when he's going to return. There is, a, I think, a valid argument to be made or, or to be explored at least uh, for that, which I'm not going to get into. But I will just say that, that there's a possibility that he may not even know his, when he's going to return still yet. And the reason for that would be because the return of Christ, well, the, the entire new covenant, the birth, life, and death of Jesus, and the future return of Christ, is all a beautiful, symbolic picture of the Jewish marriage ceremony and process. And, well, the, in a Jewish marriage while well, the son is waiting to go get his bride his father is preparing for his future bride a home and he and the son doesn't know when to go get his betrothed until the father says go get her which would if that symbolism matches would mean jesus still doesn't know and he's waiting for the father to say go get your bride it's time to get married which is why we have a Scripture calls what Jesus calls a wedding feast at his return. So there is that possibility. But either way, what I've said concerning his voluntary divine restriction in his earthly ministry, that I'm sure of. So what does this mean to us, knowing all of this about Jesus and the fact that Paul is telling Timothy that we don't know when he will return? Paul doesn't give Timothy here any command. Or any instruction on what to do with this knowledge. He just states it. The appearing of the Lord Jesus uh, in verse 14. He says, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. That's all the information we have. He's coming back. It'll be at the proper time. Proper time meaning the perfect time. That's what verse 15 says. The proper time. The perfect time. So what does that mean to us if Paul gives us no further instruction on what to do with this information? Well, there's a couple of applications here. A couple of things that we can glean from this. One, 
Paul immediately, and we'll do this next week, the second half of verse 15 and the rest of verse, and all of verse 16 is what we call a doxology. It's a formula of praise, right? And um, a praise to God specifically. And that's exactly what Paul does after mentioning the return of Christ, that it will be at the perfect time and the proper time. Paul immediately launches into praising God. So we can gather that the appropriate immediate response to the reality that Jesus is coming back should be to praise God. And if you think about the marriage ceremony of the Jews, well, that would make perfect sense because when a man makes a proposal to a woman to be married in Jewish marriage, what would happen is they would be betrothed and then the husband, the soon-to-be husband would go away and while he's away, he'd be preparing the place and what would the woman be doing? Anticipating the return of her man for the consummation of the commitment they already made. The betrothal period in, the, in Jewish history is not like the engagement period in America. Those are not equal. The betrothal period is a commitment to be married. The covenant hasn't been finished or sealed or completed yet, but it has been enacted. It has been started. It is more than just a, hey, because today, if you get engaged and then you decide, you know what, maybe we shouldn't get married, and then you break up your engagement, that's kind of a no harm, no fault. I mean, people's feelings are hurt, but it's in terms of covenant, it's not like a divorce. Whereas in a betrothal period you would essentially be divorcing your wife. If you were betrothed, you made a commitment to marry that person. The covenant hasn't been sealed yet or consummated or finished because there's more to that wedding ceremony that needs to happen. But in the Jewish culture, you're already a part of that covenant. Which makes perfect sense because Jesus is right now our betrothed husband who we're waiting for to return and we are sealed already in that new covenant relationship, marriage with him. And so, what is the woman doing while the soon-to-be husband is away preparing a place? She is getting ready. And do you think she's excited? Find me a woman who says yes to a man proposing to marry her and, and isn't excited. Find me a woman who isn't excited because... If you can find me a woman who's not excited about the soon-to-be husband she's going to have, I will show you a woman who should have said no instead of yes. Because women don't say yes unless they're excited. And let's be honest, women get way more excited about that stuff than men do, right? Because they are anticipating what this man's going to do for them, the blessings that he's going to provide for them, the way he's going to lead them the way he's going to protect them. There's a benefit to a woman having a man and vice versa, obviously. And the man should be just as excited. Do you think Jesus is up there going, ugh, I have to go back and get that, the, my bride. Ugh. Like, of course not. They'd be insane. Jesus is like, I mean, I don't know what he's really doing up there, but I'm sure he's like, Can we, today, God, Father, today? No? Ah. Oh. Love her so much. Mm, I can't wait to go get her. You have no idea how much Jesus is excited about you. And I mean that. He's so excited about you. He cannot wait. He can't. Good thing he has perfect patience. Because he cannot wait to see you face to face. 
He cannot wait to come back and get you. I, I think many Christians think about the return of Christ as like it's going to be this massive judgment. And it's kind of terrifying. And the end of the world is going to be scary. And, and things are going to be really terrifying. And there's going to be earthquakes. And things, there's going to be all kinds of destruction around the world. And Jesus is going to come back. Jesus is going to come back. And you are going to be satisfied. My wife loves when I come home. She loves when I come home. She's like, oh, you're home. I'm like, oh, you're excited that I'm home. All right. We're on the right track. That, that is just a, a tiny little sliver, a little glimpse of what it means for Christ to return. We should be excited about his return. We should be anticipating his return. In 1 Thessalonians 4.13, Paul tells us that even though we do not know the time of his return, he says that we anticipate his return, and therefore, because we anticipate it, we have hope. Five verses later, in chapter 4, verse 18, 1 Thessalonians 4.18, Paul commands us what to do with that hope. He says, therefore, encourage one another with these words. So, we now have some instruction on what to do with our limited knowledge of Jesus' return. What we do know is we should be excited. What we do know is he's going to come back and get us. What we do know is that just like any bride who's awaiting the, the return of her betrothed Jewish husband to come get her, we should be anticipating his return, excited about his return, happy to see Jesus. I don't know about you guys. I love life. I love life. I'm grateful to God for every person I know, my family, the things he's given me, the things I can do, the fact that I'm healthy and I'm not like, you know, struggling in other ways that I could be struggling or, or, or you know, have some sort of physical challenges that would be a, a burden. Instead, God has incredibly blessed me. I, I'm, I'm healthy. I'm happy. I have everything I need. I couldn't ask for more. And yet, I just can't wait to see him and I'm excited to see him and as, as much as I love all the things he's given me and this life that he's given me and blessed me with life kind of sucks I mean it's hard right like day after day after day we have to get tired and then go to sleep like we literally have to shut down our bodies for hours just so we can recharge for another to use it for another 18 hours and then we get tired fast, and life's exhausting, and then we get old, you know, and life is full of challenges, and we struggle, and we, and then, and then on top of that, there's the spiritual burden of our own sin, and, you know, like, I could just go into all the, de you guys live a life, you know what it's like, <laughs> I don't have to convince you, <laughs> maybe if you're younger, you're going, I don't know, life's pretty cool, it's like, eh, just wait, so, I mean, and, and I don't mean to downplay the, the joy and, and, and gift that this life is. But again, in everything in life, there's a balance. Life is fantastically, indescribably wonderful and also incredibly challenging, difficult and painful and hard. And sometimes it stinks. It stinks to, to live this life. And the only reason it is that way is because sin exists. So it interrupts what's supposed to be good. And so as much as I love this life, and I say this in the most non-suicidal way, <laughs> I can't wait till I die. <laughs> like, 
I can't wait until this is over. And that's exactly what Paul was talking about in Philippians 1.21 when he says to live as Christ and to die as gain. And he says it's far better to go and be with Christ. I, I, I share that excitement that Paul has even with my incredibly sinful love for this world. I still know Christ is better. And so I can't wait for his return. And because I can't wait, what do I do? I wait and I anticipate. And because I can anticipate something that is promised to me in the future, that is what we call hope. And what are we to do with hope? 1 Thessalonians 4.18, encourage each other with hope. Now, how do you encourage each other with hope? Well, encourage each other with hope is best used or it feels most powerful when things are difficult. Right? It doesn't say encourage yourself. It says encourage one another. We should be internally and personally encouraged by hope. But what Paul is getting at in 1 Thessalonians 4.18 is that we are a body. We are the bride. We aren't several brides. We are the bride. One body, one bride, one church. Ephesians chapter 4. In one spirit to one God by one faith. So, if you are having a difficult time in life, then that affects me because we're one. You're my brother or sister in Christ. We're not just like, it's not just that I'm a separate individual human and you're a separate individual human and you can have your experience and I can have mine. That is also a reality. But at the exact same time, we are united perfectly in Christ. So your pains are my pains. This is why Paul says in Galatians 6, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And Romans tells us that the law of Christ is love. So how do we fulfill love? Bear one another's burdens. Because your burden is my burden. Because if you're burdened, the bride is burdened, and I'm the bride. So I have to lift you up. Even with selfish ambition for my own bridalness in Christ, I have to lift you up. I have to encourage you. It benefits me to serve you. We should all think that way. And so when does the encouragement of hope of the return of Christ become the most powerful? When things are their worst in life. When someone gets cancer, there's, hey, this life might not be very long for you, but there is a hope that is eternally joyful and satisfying waiting for you this life but a vapor blink of an eye but that life that's our hope that's our assurance we anticipate it so when life's at its worst we encourage each other with the hope of eternal life and you don't need to just wait till things are bad to encourage people with this have you ever gone up to a believer and just said hey we're going to heaven and just for no reason do you know how awesome of a thought that is? Because I guarantee you, most of us aren't walking around like, I'm going to heaven. I'm going, to, like, we're just living our life doing whatever other thing we're doing. 
we're going to work, we're serving the family, you know, eating, sitting, playing, whatever we're doing. And most of our life is spent not thinking about eternal life. And that's okay in the sense that um, we got other things to keep our mind on and we can only think of one thing at a time. But man, you don't have to wait till your brother or sister in Christ is struggling or in pain and suffering before we encourage them with the future hope of the return of Christ. Instead, let's get everybody ready for the difficult challenges that are coming by reminding each other and encouraging one another with the hope of eternal life, the anticipation of the return of our Lord. Hey, everybody, our husband's coming back one day to take us from this place. And I don't know about you, but I just told you how kind of stinky life is but at the same time think about how amazing this reality is like and how blessed we are to be americans in the 21st century absolute freedom do whatever we want if anything that's probably not good for us but if we're just so blessed like to to think that there's something better than this existence atheists love their existence And they don't even believe in God. How much more should we love it knowing it's coming from God? And how much more, if we know that, should we anticipate and be excited about the future? Because we are promised that's going to be better, infinitely better. Infinitely better. Better to a degree that no number on paper could describe. If we would encourage each other with that reality regularly, then maybe when the cancer comes, we're ready. We have one more. Command in scripture about what to do. While we wait. In Matthew 24, within Jesus' explanation about his return and not knowing when he's going to return, he says just a few verses later in Matthew 24, 42, he says, therefore, so he just said, I'm coming back, I don't know when, only the Father knows, but then he says, therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. The command stay awake means be alert or watch You are only alert and watchful of the things you anticipate. I anticipate watching the Packers today at 3.30. Why do I anticipate it? Because I know it's going to be on TV. I've been promised that it's going to be on TV. The network's promised me that it'll be on TV, and I want to see it. So I anticipate it, which means I have a hope right now that is going to last for another four hours. A hope to watch the Packers play. I anticipate it. We are alert and watchful only of things we anticipate. And, and we anticipate that which is promised. And since we are promised Jesus' return, we must be excited about his return. We must be watchful. And Jesus' meaning is clear here. The idea of being alert means being excited about his return. And if excited, if you're excited about his return, then you'll be What? Ready for his return. And what does it mean to be ready for the return of Christ? It means sanctified. That 
is ready. Why? Look at Ephesians 5. What does sanctification look like? He says, and Paul says in Ephesians 5, he's talking about marriage, but he uses Christ as the example. And as he describes Jesus, he says of Jesus that he sanctifies his bride so that we would be holy and without blemish on that day. What's that day? The wedding day. The return of our Lord. He is sanctifying us. He is getting us ready. His spirit is here with us and in us, getting us ready for the return of him, he himself, face to face. That is, the exist- that is your existence on this earth. Getting ready. Being sanctified. So, so we ought to be living our way- lives in the way our Lord commanded. That is how we get ready. That is how we stay alert. That is what it means to be watchful of his return. Our role isn't to know when he returns. Our role is to be ready for his return. And we get ready by getting sanctified. And we get sanctified by getting satisfied. And we get satisfied in his presence. So, do you spend time in his presence? Because if you don't, you're not going to feel satisfied. And it will slow down you being sanctified. And you will therefore be less anticipatory and less excited about his return. Yeah. yeah. So let's commune with God. Let's pray. Father, we love you and we thank you for your word, and for the promise of you, Jesus, coming back to get us. We cannot wait for you, Lord. We cannot. You are our Lord, our master, lover of our soul, satisfier of our soul, conqueror of our sin, shepherd to our needs, and God of the universe, and friend, and brother we cannot wait to share glory with you or for you to share glory with us just to see your face Jesus that's all we look forward to make that desire real today we pray in Jesus name amen